Okay, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> uh, welcome to Abebe Smart Synagogue and to uh, our new uh, series, the Chachamim, uh, which is a uh, monthly series we're going to be doing uh, across uh, this you know, year into uh, the next year, uh, looking at uh, the different Chachamim or kind of rabbinic leaders of uh, the Spanish and Portuguese community, Shar Hashemayim. Uh, here in London. Uh, we've looked in the past at some of the uh, uh, <clears throat> kind of well-known non-rabbinic figures uh, in London, both uh, men and women. Um, and so this year I decided we'd look at some of the rabbinic leaders as well, uh, some incredibly fascinating uh, individuals, uh, really uh, some eclectic figures, uh, some considered to be great, great scholars, uh, as well as, well as uh, really important leaders uh, at times of... Uh, uh, challenge and change within the community, as seems like this community is always in that in that moment, kind of the nature of things in the West, uh, and therefore had a chance to play kind of this rabbinic role, but this leadership role uh, as well. Uh, what we're going to do in this series, we're going to look at these figures, we're going to look at their, their lives, broadly speaking. Uh, most of them did not spend their entire lives uh, in London. Uh, in fact, none of them were actually born uh, in the community. All the Chachamim have come from outside uh, of the community uh, over the past three centuries. Um, and so we'll get a sense of kind of who they are from kind of looking at their entire story and how they came to be in London and uh, some of them were, have, were in places after London as well. And so we'll kind of look at their, uh, their broader story. Um, we'll obviously be particularly interested in their, their lives in London, right, as, as the Chachamim of the community, uh, looking at what their perhaps unique contributions were, were what their unique contributions were to the community itself, uh, and kind of their interactions with the members of the community. Uh, and hopefully through that, we'll ultimately not just be telling their story, but we'll be telling the story of the community itself over these centuries. Uh, and so it will kind of be a, uh, a segue uh, into what was really happening in the community. And I hope in that sense, we'll really be getting, uh, while we're starting with the Chachamim, ultimately we'll be looking at the Kahal uh, in broader terms uh, as well, which I hope will then make it like really interesting in terms of placing it in its time and what's happening in the community uh, and so on. Uh, and so tonight, we're going to begin with the first rabbi of the community, uh, in that case, also the first rabbi in London, uh, since Jews had been expelled in the 13th century. Uh, his name was Yaakov Sasportas. Um, let's not do that now. Okay, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas. Uh, his name is interesting itself because Sasportas uh, is actually a hybridization of two Spanish words, seis portas, uh, which means six, uh, six uh, doorways, and you can see on this uh, picture of him, it has beneath it his family crest, which is six little doorways. Um, there's actually a number of photos on the web that claim to be Sasportas. Um, some academics have looked at them and have identified that the only one which is certainly him is this one over here, which they actually have in the Spanish-Portuguese community in Amsterdam. Um, but if you look online the Wikipedia and so on, there'll actually be other images that come up that don't look exactly like this. Um, he, the person looks a little bit different, so 
could it be just different, you know, renderings of the same person? Could it maybe be a relative of his? Unclear. This is the only one that we know because this one has a whole bunch of uh, text associated with it that's covered over in this, uh, in this page that essentially show um, the talk about him and talk about his life. So that one we know actually is, is depicting uh, Susportas. So, uh, of course, this is showing him in his older years. He didn't look like that when he was a teenager. So <laughs> one, one stage in his life. But uh, you can see he's holding a quill, which means he was known for his writing, as we shall, as we shall see why, why he's known as a, uh, as a writer. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about who he was, about his life, and how he came to live in London. Uh, for that, we really need a map, because <laughs> he lived quite an adventurous life, uh, which requires a bit of uh, maps to kind of get the full sense of, of all of his travels. Uh, he was born in Oran, so he was born over here in Algiers, right? Algeria, sorry, over here in Oran. Uh, by the age of, that was in 1610. Uh, in 1634, he becomes the rabbi in, Tlem in Tlemkin, uh, I'm not sure if that's pronounced correctly, um, in Algiers. Eventually then he's in Marrakesh, uh, in Fez, in Saleh. So he's kind of in this North African region for the beginning decades of his life. Um, again, he starts, he gets his first rabbinic post when he's 24 years old, right? So he's, he's clearly quite an achiever, as we shall see. Um, however, in 1646, so at the age of 36, he's imprisoned by the Moorish king. There's all kinds of conflicts going on over there. He's imprisoned. Um, seven years later, 1653, he escapes with his family to Amsterdam. Okay? So that's when he's going to enter what we know of as the Western Sephardic world, right? As opposed to North Africa and uh, the Ottoman Empire, right? what we call it more the uh, the Sephardim, kind of the broader terms from the Sephardim who left in 1492, right? The Western Sephardim, referring to the Jews that didn't leave Spain and Portugal, but actually were converted by force, right, in those places, and then at some point afterwards, having, after having lived outwardly, at least as Catholics, eventually left and made their way to different places in Western Europe where they established Jewish communities and returned to, uh, to, a, Jewish, uh, to a Jewish existence, right? And that's who become known as the Western Sephardic, right? So he eventually, his family escapes to these Western Sephardic places to find refuge um, in 1653. Now, he eventually will return to Morocco and he'll work on behalf of the king, actually doing some negotiations with the Spanish. Again, he's from Oran, so which means he's from a Spanish-speaking part of North Africa. And so he has, he's, he's comfortable with, uh, with the Spanish language. Um, until finally in 1664, he gets another rabbinic post, right, which is in London, right, which is in London, okay, uh, 1664, okay, so we'll return to that date later. When do we say the community was established? Everybody know? 1656, 1656, right, so the first rabbi, I just note that, the first rabbi isn't for eight years later until 1664. Okay, so we'll look a little bit about what's going on during those intermediary years, right? Those years from when the community is established, but they don't yet have a rabbi uh, in situ, okay? So he's eventually gonna make his way to London in 1664. 1665, he's had enough. Uh, plague has broken out in London. He's getting out of town. He makes his way first to Amsterdam, and then eventually over to Hamburg, 
okay? And then he will live in Hamburg um, until 1673, okay? So he'll be there for a number of years. He seems to be uh, perhaps a, uh, uh, a teacher, uh, kind of teaching people, young people in the community. Hamburg in the 1600s is a very large and important Western Sephardic community as well. Into the 1700s, it will decline, but they'll continue to be a Spanish Portuguese community there also for centuries as well, okay? So he'll be in Hamburg, and then in 1673, I know we're just kind of jumping through lots of dates, so we'll kind of review them. In 1673, he's invited back to Amsterdam to be the head of a yeshiva from the Pinto family. So there were a number of yeshivot in the Spanish Portuguese community in Amsterdam, one of them the Pinto family, known as Keter Torah, the crown of the Torah. He'll be there for two years before he's invited to Livorno, which is probably the second largest Spanish Portuguese community largest one being Amsterdam, the second one being Livorno, right? So up around over here. He'll make his way to Livorno, where he's invited to be the Dayan of the community and the head of their yeshiva, okay? So that's a fairly large and important post. He'll be there from 1675 to 1680. In 1680, he'll be invited back to Amsterdam, now to be the head of their main yeshiva, known as Etz Chaim, which was kind of the crowning jewel of the Western Sephardic world, this really important uh, rabbinic seminary uh, in Amsterdam, um, and he will serve as the head of Etz Chaim from 1680 till 1693. In 1693, the Chacham of the community uh, dies, and he's appointed the Chacham. So he's appointed the head of the largest Spanish Portuguese community in the world in Amsterdam in 1693, and he will serve in that post until 1698 uh, when he dies. Okay? So he lives from 1610 to 16. Uh, 98. He lives a very long, uh, lives a very long life. Okay, so that is the uh, kind of the motions, right? Kind of all the movements of him. Just to kind of review, he's from North Africa, from Oran, makes his way to Morocco, to Amsterdam, back to Morocco, to London, to Hamburg, to Amsterdam, to Livorno, back to Amsterdam. Okay, so he lives in lots of places. He may be the only rabbi in the history of the Spanish Portuguese that serves in all of the four main communities of the diaspora, right? Because he serves in Livorno, he serves in Amsterdam, he serves in Hamburg, he serves in London. And we know he also has some correspondence with the other important Spanish Portuguese communities, which are in Bordeaux and Bayonne as well, right? So those are really the main communities. When you kind of talk the Spanish and Portuguese, right? The main communities really are Bordeaux and Bayonne. Bordeaux being the biggest one, so Bordeaux, Livorno, Amsterdam, in the 17th century, Hamburg, and London, and then of course the communities that are in the West, right, in the West Indies, and in America, right, that also have these Spanish and Portuguese communities. But in Europe, those are the main centers of the Spanish Portuguese in the 17th slash 18th centuries, okay? And he serves in all of them, okay? So he's really kind of interesting through him to kind of understand what's going on with the, uh, with the community, with kind of the whole Spanish and Portuguese uh, diaspora. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about him and what makes him uh, an important figure beyond just the fact that he, he serves all across the Spanish and Portuguese in, in prominent and important roles. One is that probably the thing that he's most famous for when people talk about Sasportas is his fight against the Sabbateans. Uh, the Sabbateans are uh, the followers of Shabbat Hai Tzvi, uh, the false messiah, a uh, fellow who uh, uh, declares himself to be the messiah in the 1660s, uh, 1666, uh, and 
there's a huge groundswell of uh, support and uh, excitement surrounding his uh, declaration that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the, the end to Jewish suffering. Uh, and many uh, Jews around the world are, you know, getting excited. There are people who are preparing to, to emigrate to the land of Israel, that this is going to be the time. Uh, and many people within the Spanish and Portuguese community are, are signing up, both uh, lay people and, and rabbinic figures as well. And Sasportas lays out a very strong anti-Sabbatean uh, movement. He's really one of the uh, immediate voices and strong voices that combats it and says this person is not the Messiah, this is a false Messiah, uh, and we need to distance ourselves from this movement. Of course, he'll eventually uh, be uh, given an ultimatum by the Sultan uh, of uh, the Ottoman Empire to either convert to Islam or be killed. He converts to Islam. Uh, that, for the most part, uh, ends the movement within the Jewish community, except there are many thousands who do continue to follow and convert to Islam as well. They become known as the Don Donme, and there are still descendants of the Donme in Turkey today. Um, there's all kinds of stories out that they, they create a separate kind of cabal group in, in Turkey today, but there's kind of, they end up creating this subgroup of uh, kind of of Muslims in, in the Ottoman Empire. In any case, it's a devastating blow to, uh, to the Jewish world. Um, all kinds of questions what the repercussions are of it. Um, but of course, the movement itself is probably a repercussion of the expulsion itself from Spain in 1492 and the oppression of conversos and the returning of conversos to Judaism and kind of this very complicated time where kind of there's this moment where people feel like this is the moment for the Messiah to come, uh, and the Messiah comes. Uh, one of the challenges with the Messianic movement is one of the, uh, the principles that, uh, that um, Shabtai Svi puts out is that there is this idea of avera lishma, that a person sometimes can sin with, uh, with good intention, and that that is a good deed, and so he's known as uh, doing different kinds of uh, sins and uh, profane acts, uh, but saying that he's doing them with these uh, deeply religious intentions, and therefore he making, he's making everything holy, right? So not only some things will be holy, but everything in fact will be holy, and he's unifying the world to make, in, you know, in, in, in instilling uh, greatness within all of God's creations. Any case, so some people buy that, Sasportas does not. He says that's not the way Torah works. Some things are wrong, some things are right. The things that are prohibited are prohibited, things that are permitted are permitted, and I don't care if you're a messiah, you can't do those things. If you're doing those things, it means that you are a false messiah. Any case, uh, that really is one of his very important contributions, something he's very uh, well known for, and that will happen just after he leaves London, right? Because he leaves London in 1665, that will happen in 1666, so it's really in his Hamburg years that he is important. He, he'll do lots of important writings on the subject, that's why he's kind of seen as, as one of these scribes. That's one of his important, uh, his important contributions. Uh, I would say the other important contribution is his publication, which, which he won't publish, his son will publish this after his death, I think in the 1730s, of his rabbinic responsum. So rabbinic responsum are a series of letters that are uh, responding to queries that he will receive from, uh, from different people on different uh, legal matters, different halakhic issues. Uh, and 
what can be seen from this collection of responses that will be published is he's a great rabbinic scholar, a great Talmudic scholar, um, most likely the greatest rabbinic scholar in the Western Sephardic world. I mean, he is a, he's a major, major uh, Tamid Chacham. Uh, his writings are addressing all kinds of different issues, different concerns, um, particularly some that are most interesting are the ones that relate to questions of conversos and their return to Judaism and their status, uh, legal ramifications uh, dealing with, um, dealing with uh, inheritances and can you inherit while you're a, in, while you're a Christian from a Jew? All kinds of kind of interesting legal questions that come about from this complex community of Spanish Portuguese people, some of whom are now openly living as Jews, some who are still living essentially as Catholics back in Spain and Portugal, but relatives have now left and moved on to the Western Sephardic world, and so really difficult kinds of questions. So he is really kind of the go-to or the major rabbinic figure within the Spanish and Portuguese world in, uh, in the 17th century, of course, given a very traditional Jewish education in North Africa. Uh, perhaps it's what allows him to kind of reach those levels. Not that there won't be rabbis that will be, come out of places like Amsterdam and so on, but he is really a towering, uh, a towering rabbinic figure. Um, and of course, I would say the one other important contribution is, of course, that he is the first rabbi in London. Uh, and we'll see that that is not just kind of, oh, something he happens to be, but he will leave an imprint. Uh, he will leave his mark as, as the first rabbi of the community, um, and that will be one of his, I think, lasting kind of legacies um, of his life as well. Does anybody have any questions so far? Okay, so let's... So let's uh, go on a little bit. Um, what I want to do is I want to now focus on his life in London um, because while it is short, a year to year and a half, uh, quite a lot happens uh, and it's an important time. So I'm gonna, for, for this, I'm going uh, to put the dates on the board so we can kind of follow exactly what's, what's happening. Um, and then the latter part of the lecture, we're going to actually look at some primary sources dealing with things that he wrote and his life uh, to kind of see in his own writing how he, uh, what he thought about different, uh, different issues and what kind of issues came about, okay? So let's take a look. So let's uh, start with some uh, uh, important well-known dates. Uh, of course, Jews are not permitted to live in London after 1290. Uh, they've been expelled, uh, but we know that some we might not call them Jews, we'll call them conversos, right? People who are descendants of converted Jews will settle in London from time to time after uh, 1492. Um, but there will be a resurgence of that kind of community here in the 1630s. will be the start of a converso community here, living ostensibly as Spaniards, going to Catholic Mass, right? Do, living essentially as, as them, but they know who each other are, they're kind of perhaps communicate with each other, they know that they are a different set of, of Iberians, okay? Um, there will be a movement to establish a formal Jewish community here, though, at a certain point. Do I know what year that happens? When, the, when does that happen? And, and who, who does, how does that happen? Anybody know? So before 1656, just before 1655, right? So in 1655, right, something's going to happen. Everybody know what happened in 1655? 
the letter. Sorry? The letter. Well, there's a letter and there's a visitor, right? So a visitor comes to London, right? Manasseh ben Israel, okay? He'll, he's a rabbi who had been born in Portugal, as a, as a child, he's born in Portugal, family escaped, go to Amsterdam, he's, he's educated in the Etzheim Yeshiva, he becomes a rabbi, he's one of the more well-known rabbis of the world in the 17th century. Uh, he will uh, send a letter to Oliver Cromwell uh, requesting an audience uh, in, in an attempt to formalize the establishment of a Jewish community in London. Okay, so he'll come over to London in 1655, meet with Oliver Cromwell, they'll set up the Whitehall um, uh, Commission, right, to uh, try and uh, uh, raise this issue. Um, it doesn't go well, the, it's, it's closed, and Menachem ben Israel goes back to, to Amsterdam, essentially having failed, okay? But in 1656, okay, uh, there is going to be a fellow, Antonio Robles, right, whose ship, there is going to be war between England and the Spanish. The, the English are going to seize all the Spanish vessels in the port of London, among those of Antonio Robles. Antonio Robles, though, will go to the government and argue that his ship should be returned to him because while he's from Spain, he's not actually Spanish because he's a Jew. As a Jew, he can't be truly Spanish because of the Inquisition. Uh, and remarkably, even though Jews aren't supposed to be here, they say, okay, right? And he is giving his shit back. And it's kind of this moment where people realize, okay, I guess, I guess we can be here, okay? And so then, they're, then the community is going to start to organize itself, right? Then by 1657, right, they're going to uh, another fellow, fellow Antonio Carvajal. Right? They're going to get uh, a house on pre-church, right, for a synagogue, and they're going to get land on Mile End for a cemetery, right, and start establishing the core elements of the community, right, having a cemetery and a synagogue, okay? And that will happen in 1657. Now, this in itself doesn't make a special Portuguese community. Right? To have a special Portuguese community, of course, the thing you most need are they're going to have regulations. You need rules. <laughs> you need rules. So, it will be in 1663 on Rosh Hashanah that the community will announce that they are going to uh, begin crafting Askamot. Okay? They're going to begin crafting Askamot regulations. And then in 1664 Pesach, they will formally roll them out with Parnassim, which is why till this day, it is on Pesach, or Shabbat HaGadol, that the new Parnassim are, are officially put into place, right? Because that is when the Askamot were finalized and the first Parnassim were kind of officially established. So it's really in 1664 on Pesach that the community is giving formal, uh, formal establishment, okay? Now, just to give a sense of people, in 1657, there's probably about 30 men in the community. By 1664, there's probably about 100, okay? Which probably means about 250 people, 
okay? So give a sense about kind of the size of the community. Not a very large community. Okay, we'd be very happy to have 100 men, uh, right? So every week, every week, right? 200 people. Okay, so that's kind of the size of the community. Now, things are not going to necessarily go completely smoothly, but one thing that they're going to decide to do is when they establish the Askamot, what they also do is they send an invitation to Amsterdam or to, to North Africa for um, Sasportas, right? So they officially invite Chacham Sasportas to come to the community, and he will arrive a very short time later, sometime in the spring, right? Sasportas will come. Interestingly, and we'll talk about this, he is invited to review the Askamot and signs them, right? So he's a, normally there's kind of this division, this match Portuguese between kind of the lay leadership and their responsibilities and the rabbis, but he actually signs the Askamot uh, as well. In fact, in one of his letters uh, that he writes shortly after his arrival, he writes about you know, this great kind of unity in the community and you know, that there's like the communities of single mind and what they want to accomplish and what they want to do. Uh, and probably he's referring to the fact that they kind of all collectively signed these Askamot and there's real agreement about what the community is going to look like. It's what we call the <laughs> okay, so this is the this time. Okay, a little bit later in 1664, um, in the fall, okay, so in, uh, in 1664, in the fall, there's going to be a moment of crisis in the community because there's going to be passed the Conventicle Act. Do you know what this is? The Conventicle Act, um, which essentially says there had been a law prior to this. Um, that had said that it was prohibited, that, that every person was obligated to attend Church of England, church. This law changed and said there was a prohibition of more than five men to gather for a non-Church of England service. Okay? So they weren't saying you had to go to Church of England service. What they were saying is that you couldn't organize for a non-Church of England service. Of course, the community was quite uh, concerned, right? They just established their, their regulations. They just established themselves with the presumption that now it's, it's you know, that what they're doing is illegal. So they actually uh, send a petition to uh, Charles II, um, and he, the report goes, that he kind of just laughs and goes, don't worry about it, right? He's not concerned about the Jews. He's concerned about other dissenting groups, right? Jews are not the, uh, are not the concern. And essentially, they are given um, you know, word from the king that they can live there. And we know that that makes its way into the Askamot eventually as well, because one of the things that the king tells them is that you guys can stay in London as long as you don't cause any disturbances, as long as you guys don't start splintering into multiple factions, that that's okay, right? And so what's written into the Askamot based on Charles II words to them is that they can never have a breakaway synagogue, right? Which will come. Now, in the 1840s, right, which is what we spoke about last year, right, when all of a sudden they say, wait, no, 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 but don't you remember the 1660s what Charles II told us? We can't have breakaways, right? So, in any case, so that was kind of, that happens over then, right? This is Charles II, so, right, a moment of crisis that ultimately leads to a sense of security, right? Because they know that the king will, uh, will support their, their living there. And then in 1665 is the plague. Right, so this is going to happen uh, sometime in August, is when it reaches London. So in August will be the plague, and uh, Sasportas flees. Okay? 
Uh, so of course he won't be there in 1666, then the whole city burns down. Okay, so that's basically what happens. He's actually not there that long, right? He arrives in the spring of 1664, leaves in August of 1665. He's there 12, 13, you know, months or so in total. Not a very long time. You wouldn't think enough time to really leave much of an impact, but already the fact that again, he's the first rabbi and he signs the Askamot already gives a sense of his significance right within within the community itself. Okay, any, any questions? Yes? Will the uh, Askamot here based on the ones in Amsterdam? Exactly. They're exactly they're, they're based on Amsterdam, which in turn have been based on that. Right. So they're just kind of looking at that, which makes sense that many people in the community, while some had come from Portugal, many of them had come from Amsterdam. Right? And so there's very close connection. It's why probably people here knew who Seth Portis was, because they probably knew him from his time in Amsterdam. Right? So it wasn't just, oh, just writing with some random person. It was something that maybe some people here had even had known before or known about him, you know, something like that. So yeah, the community is, is very much connected to, uh, to Amsterdam. Well, probably the next lecture when that begins to change, right? But at this point, it's very tightly bound with Amsterdam. Did, did he leave because of the plague or because his work was completed here? Uh, probably because of the plague. But he doesn't, as we'll say, he doesn't seem to mind, okay? <laughs> so we'll talk about, we'll talk about uh, the, when, the honeymoon, uh, when the honeymoon ends. Okay, so that's that. So let's look a little bit about it. I, I basically contend that... Um, he has several important contributions. And let's, uh, let's look at one source first, which is a well-known source, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the first, uh, the first contribution. Okay. The Diary of Samuel Pepys. Okay, so this is well-known. We just finished Sibchat Torah, everyone. There's always articles that appear about this with all kinds of incorrect information. So let's talk about what actually uh, goes on over here. Uh, this may be of particular interest to members of the Bevis Marks Committee uh, to learn a little bit about what had happened at that time. So this is what he writes. He says, so he says, this is the Wednesday, the 14th of October. He says, then we went home, and after dinner, my wife and I, by Mr. Wallison's conduct, uh, went to the Jewish synagogue. This is 1663, right? This is, well, we'll return to the, dates in a second, but now you'll have a sense of when we're talking about. He says, we go to the synagogue. He goes, were the men and boys in their veils, right? Probably their talitot, right? Um, and the women behind the lattice out of sight, right? So the women are behind the mechitza, and some things stand up, which I believe is their law, right? So that's referring to the scrolls of the Torah, in a press to which all coming in do bow, right? Which, which is the press? the Hechal, right, the Ark, right, so everyone's kind of bowing to the Ark, and at the putting of their veils, do you say something, right, put it, so when they put on the Talit, they're obviously saying the blessing of um, to which others that hear him do cry, Amen, and the party uh, do kiss his veil, right, and so then they're kissing the Tzitzit, right, so this is all what we, right, anyone who goes to synagogue would, would see and be familiar with. He goes, their service is all in a singing way, okay, and in Hebrew, and anon, their laws that they take out of the press are carried by several men, four or five several burdens in all, and they do relieve one another. And whether it is that everyone desires to have the carrying of it, I cannot tell. 
Thus, they carried it around about the room which such a ser- with, while such a service is singing. So he says they've taken four or five scrolls out of the ark. They're carrying them around. He can't quite tell if everybody even really wants to be carrying them, but they are, and so they're passing them from one to the other, and they're going around and they're singing as they do so. And in the end, they had a prayer for the king, which they pronounce his name in Portugal and Portuguese, but the prayer, like the rest, was in Hebrew. But Lord, to see the disorder, laughing, sporting, and no attention, but confusion in all their service, more like brutes than people knowing the true God, would make a man forswear ever seeing them more, and indeed, I never did see so much or could have imagined there had been any religion in the whole world so absurdly performed as this. So while he starts out with this very nice description, he does not end on a high note. He's not uh, particularly impressed with the, uh, with the uh, tumult of the service. Uh, of course, people have identified this as Simchat Torah, right? on which occasion uh, uh, Jews take the Torahs out and they dance with them and they're singing and tends to be a bit of uh, commotion with that, uh, with that particular um, service. There's some question about the date, because it seems that the night of Simchat Torah would have maybe been Tuesday the 13th at night. So there's a bit of a question about what, what exactly is going on, but it certainly seems to be something related to Simchat Torah. Uh, the question, so most people read this and they say, oh, this is Simchat Torah. This is actually the greatest promotion we could probably do for the synagogue. You know, be like, this is what happens in our synagogue. Everyone will want to come here, right? Nowadays, this would be a good thing. But anyone who's in the community knows that historically, the Spanish Portuguese didn't have circuits. They didn't have hakafot. Uh, and so it's kind of bizarre when you look at this, when you say, you know, what's going on? Because while it's true that you have many communities have these hakafot, the Spanish and Portuguese Jews don't have Hakafot. The Hakafot are something that comes out of Safed in the 16th century and spreads to most Jewish communities. It's a bit Kabbalistic in, in, in origin, but the Western Sephardic Jews never really adopted uh, doing that. Um, now, in many Spanish Portuguese communities, it was finally adopted in, this, in the 1960s and 1970s uh, in some form or another. So if you go to some, many different Spanish Portuguese communities, you'll see it now, but it wasn't done historically. Um, and oftentimes people will point to it and say, oh, you see, even though they haven't done it for 300 years, you see, originally it was the minhag, it was the custom, and when they established it in the 1970s, they were just reestablishing what had been the original minhag, which of course is not true, because no Spanish Portuguese community has hakafot historically. So the question is, what is going on in this source? So my number one contention, right, is that the difference between 1663 and 1664 when it comes time for the 14th of October, is the only thing that's changed right between then is a sport bus. They finally have a rabbi, right? They finally have someone who comes into town who really knows what he's doing, and he says, wait a second, we don't, we don't do hakafot, right? There's nothing written in the synagogue records that said that at some point they decided to stop doing hakafot, right? Which means that it was never established to do that. There are records that in Amsterdam, while in the synagogue they didn't do hakafot, there was a group of people who would do it in, in someone's home. There was kind of like a group of people that would do it. And so it could be that before 1664, right, before they have askamot, before they have a rabbi, they're essentially operating 
in somebody's house on pre-church lane, and they're kind of just doing a more informal kind of perhaps service, and they're doing hakafot. Maybe some of the people from Amsterdam have been part of that group in Amsterdam used to do it, and they're doing hakafot. But once they formally establish themselves as a community, as a Spanish Portuguese community, that's gone because that's not the Spanish Portuguese uh, custom originally to have uh, to have hakafot. Okay, so I think that's one of the important kind of things he does is really establishing what the correct observance of, of Judaism should be in the community here, right, in line with other Western Sephardic, other Spanish and Portuguese communities um, that, of course, he's already starting to be familiar with from, from his, different, uh, his different places. Okay, so that's, that's number one. That's number one. Now, the next one, and this is perhaps the most interesting, is his engagement with these people who are here, because most of the people that are here had previously been living as Catholics, no formal Jewish education, no real know-how about how to live as Jews. And as you can imagine, when somebody learns about Judaism, they have all kinds of difficulties. Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do that? Really? That t- right? That kind of approach. So he develops a, uh, a way of dealing with these people, a way of uh, helping move them into... Uh, what we might call to be kind of a, a standard Jewish lifestyle, uh, something that he would have been you know, intimately familiar with from where he had come from in North Africa, where everyone would have just been living these kind of uh, typical observant Jewish lives. And all of a sudden he's you know, thrust in this community of people who are you know, all, all over the place in terms of their observance and their knowledge. And he's trying to essentially ensure that the community that, he, that he's essentially now creating here should ultimately look like the community he comes from in North Africa of observant Jews who are following the Torah. So look what he says over here. Here he writes uh, in his uh, book of responsum. So this is published there uh, about his approach. And he says the following. He says, he goes, and now hear my voice and I will advise you. Since this generation is licentious and its impudence is turned even towards heaven, treat conversos as you would a trusted and beloved comrade who performs bad actions, right? So you might have a good friend who you know does things wrong, but they're your buddy, so you still love them anyway. Love him, but reprove him according to his evil traits. Be happy with a slight understanding of his purpose and strive to avert the eyes of your discernment from seeing any evil intent in his actions, right? So don't assume that he's doing it to be wicked, to be a transgressor, but understand that you know, he doesn't know, he ha- he's trying to make money in business, whatever, for whatever reason, he's not following the laws correctly. Rather, draw him by the rope of love and with soft words spoken gently. This is the proper thing to do with those new people recently arrived, because if you bind them with cords and reprove them hand and foot, you will cause them to become disconnected. They will throw off the rope of love to shirk the yoke of Torah and commandments, since the way is close and it is easy to go back to Christianity, right? So if you, if you push them too much, they'll say, forget this, right? Forget all these laws. I'm going to go back to the way that I was before, right? So you have to be loving and, and see the best in their intentions and encourage them, right? And that's the best way to bring them close to the Torah. So let's see what he does. But then he continues. <laughs> he goes, afterwards crushingly break his bones one by one, 
In his certainty of your love, he will believe that the breaking of bones is done in order to cement them back together better than they were before. Right? So once you, once you, not literally break his bones, but meaning once you've shown the love, then tell him, tell him like it is. Tell him this, you know, speak to them straight. Be like, this is wrong. You can't do this anymore. Essentially break them down so that you can build them back up so they can be fully functioning Jews. That's his approach. Okay, that's his approach to dealing with conversos. Okay, so let's see how that goes. So this is a letter um, that Sasportas writes, referring to his time in London. And he says the following, he says, after six months passed, during which I spoke to them respectfully, and my chastisements accomplished nothing, I treated them with disgrace and announced their sins in public as desecrators of the heavenly name. And so we know that by around... You know, I don't know, uh, maybe, you know, uh, Rosh Hashanah time, you know, in uh, 1664, right? So, you know, sometime around here, Rosh Hashanah time, he starts standing up at the pulpit and saying, Rodriguez, you don't keep Shabbat. You know, Tacosta, you know, uh, you don't uh, follow the laws of kosher. You know, uh, Robles, you haven't been circumcised. Right? And he's calling people out for things that he knows they haven't done because he says, I was patient with you. I was kind to you. I was encouraging. But at the end of the day, if you're 35 years old and you haven't been circumcised, I'm sorry. You know, like there reaches a certain point where you either fall in line or you fall out. Right? You can't just go on like this. We can't have this, you know, uh, this heterogeneous community where everyone's just doing whatever they want. He goes, that's not how you create a Jewish community. You have to ultimately get people to fall in line and to live the way that they're supposed to live. And we know that it's during this time that there are, that there are several people that do not have circumcision that are told they're no longer welcome at the synagogue. Uh, we know that there are other people who write that it's at this time that they finally truly become observant. Right? And he's a little bit doing this kind of sifting people out and saying, you know, this is not just a, uh, a show. You don't just show up, you know, and it's nice, okay, great, I had my nice Jewish experience, but I'm not going to live as a Jew. He says, no, we're creating a Jewish community, and if we're going to do that, then people have to live as observant Jews, right? And he starts after kind of this very kind of warm, fuzzy kind of introduction, he now starts uh, laying down the law. So how do you think that goes? (laughs) So let me read to you a a letter, uh, a letter that uh, that he writes to one of the rabbis he knows back in Amsterdam, okay? And we'll see what he, uh, what he says. Presumably this is in uh, 1665, okay? So he writes this to Chacham uh, Josea Pardo. And he says, he goes, he goes, I tread on their ignorance in assuming authority, in assuming authority over the community, right? So again, I tread on their inner, inner arrogance in assuming authority over the community, stepping on the heads of those appointed over the community, right? Stepping on the members of the Mahmat. I spoke out sharply against them, treating them as if they were spies walking here. I did not discern myself with the meager, I did not concern myself with the meager salary that they pay me every month, that they may do with, as, do with it as they will. Meaning, I don't care if they're going to fire me, I could care less about their salary, I'm going to speak truth. I, remonst- I remonstrated with some of those who insult the angels of God, meaning the rabbis, right? there were people who spoke out against 
the rabbis, right? The rabbis of the Talmud, the words of the scribes, and the oral Torah, right? These are people coming after living as Catholics and say, we'll follow all the laws of the Torah. But the rabbis, oh, that's something else. So he says, he goes, I ripped into them. I told them, this is unacceptable. This is not the Torah. He goes, the entire reason for my coming here was for them. And all my rebuke was directed against them, right? They invited me, and now I'm chewing out the people that actually invited me. I pointed a finger at each one of them to warn him of the judgment of God, our light. He will not be judged as one who has been removed from the general category as a means to teach a rule about the general category because he mistreated me, God forbid. That's referring to a Talmudic principle, not to, not to worry. The Hamamah tried to propagate a baseless falsehood by coercing others to side against me, right? So then the, the board tried to kind of develop all these critiques of me because they weren't happy, essentially, that I was critiquing them. Can't imagine such, thing, uh, such a thing happening. But that is the way things were in 1665 between the rabbis and the board of the Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, so you can see he's really, and this is what I would say is kind of becomes one of his major kind of um, cares, right, is this issue about how do you take a group of people who have not grown up in a Jewish community, right, have not grown up around observance, want to all of a sudden create a Jewish community and do it in such a way that the community that they create will actually be an authentic, living, you know, Jewish community and won't just perpetuate this kind of half-baked Judaism that they kind of are attempting to do because they don't really know what they're doing, right? And as a result, he has an incredible amount of conflict within the community. There's obviously some people who are probably come on board with him and say, yes, I'm gonna do this. Other people who are kind of like, no, right? You can see he's dealing with this kind of conflict that we know from other Spanish Portuguese communities at this time are dealing with, right? About people debating about their commitment to follow uh, the Talmud and Jewish law as it's practiced by Jewish communities versus just what they think of as, you know, what the Torah says. Uh, and there is, conflict that happened. So it seems that, you know, when the plague hits, he's like, he's like, forget this place. I can't stand these people. I can't, this place is full of disease on every level. I'm, uh, I'm leaving, right? And he kind of goes, um, because it seems if he left on good accounts and maybe after it had ended, maybe they would have, you know, he would have come back, but he doesn't come back. He just goes to, uh, he just goes to Hamburg and becomes an educator, right? Which perhaps uh, sits well with him. He's going to teach young people and, and uh, raise up a, a a new generation, right, according to, to traditional, traditional values. Um, and so that is, I would say, the other, shall we say, shall we say, contribution that he makes to the community is really trying to mainstream the community and make sure that the community is going to reflect what a traditional Jewish community looks like so that if somebody comes from Morocco, they'll recognize what they are saying, right, that it won't be this kind of heterogeneous mix of people doing all different kinds of things, but actually will ultimately create a, uh, a traditional community. Okay, so that's the other thing that he does. Really, uh, really interesting. I don't know how well it goes. <laughs> I don't know how successful it is. But I guess that's something else that happens. The third thing that I would say are one of his important contributions is that even once he leaves, he still continues to be seen as a halachic authority. So even though he's going to leave and he's going to go to 
Hamburg, he'll go to Livorno, he'll go to, to Amsterdam, he won't go back to London, he'll still be communicating with people in London. Um, so they still recognize him as an important halakhic authority, perhaps as the preeminent halakhic authority. So if there's any major issues, they are still going to turn to him. Uh, one of the things that they turn to him to, and that by this you can see again what we're talking about in terms of that they really maintain a relationship with him, we're going to look at a, uh, a work of his response, again from his work, Ol Yaakov, from 1671, right? So, you know, quite a number of years after he's left, they are still interacting uh, with him. And he describes the following question that he received, and then he shares his answer. So what was the question? He goes, the question was this. On the subject of the form of the city and the drawing which I saw, it appears that the city is enclosed by a wall on three sides, and the river which passes it fills the entire fourth side. And there does not remain any opening more than ten amot, save for a space between the wall and the fortress. So what's he talking about? He's talking about Eruv, and what's he describing? The city, the city of London, right? You're talking about the fortress is the tower, the river is the Thames, right? I'll just read it again. He goes, the city which I saw, right, enclosed by a wall on three sides and a river which passes it fills the fourth side and there does not remain any opening more than 10 amot, which is about 20 feet or so, right? So there's no breach within the walls, right? Save for a space between the wall and the fortress, right? There's a bit of a space between where the wall ends before the Tower of London begins, at least at that time. Originally, the wall would have gone all the way down to the tower, but by that point, there was a, a separation, right? You can see that even today, where the re- remnants of the wall remain uh, by Tower Hill Station, right? You can see the remnants of the wall, and then, of course, you have the moat area, right? So the wall that didn't go all the way down at that point to, the, to the, um, the fortress, to the Tower of London. Probably originally, when it was built, it had. Right, it probably would have been complete. In any case, he says, however, there are poles fixed into the ground between which there are spaces more than three tfachim, three handbreadths, upon which is a beam which sits across all of them. Right, and you are unsure if this constitutes the form of an opening to permit this opening, right? The, the form of a doorway, right? So essentially it's saying that there is a complete wall with a river, there's a bit of an opening, but that opening essentially has this partition which is there, which is kind of these poles that have space between them, but there's a pole on top of them, so there's space to pass through them, but they still create the structure of a doorway, which might be enough to create uh, a situation where it's not considered to be a breach, but a doorway. You can have doorways, which are not considered breaches. If you have a complete opening, it's a breach, you can't carry inside, but if you have a doorway, then that's not a true breach, and you can still carry uh, on the inside, okay? So essentially, he's asked the question of, is the wall of London does that constitute an a roof, right? And here you can see a, uh, a picture of what that looks like, right? So this is also showing the fire of London, but here you can see the area, you can see where all the different gates are, Aldgate, right, Moorgate, and so on, Bishopsgate, and so on, okay? So you can see the, where the walls were um, down to the Tower of London. So what's the answer? So he writes the answer, he goes, answer, first and foremost, I already considered all this when I was stationed in London. And I sought to perform carrying from domain to domain, but, this, uh, but did not find permission. I therefore warned all whom God is in their heart to not carry any object for Amot in the public domain. It now appears again to others to seek permission through this rendering which they sent. So he's basically saying, 
I already dealt with this when I was there. You guys are now sending me a picture thinking that it's going to change something. However, it, the picture, does not help anything because it does not assist to perform or prohibit it. Prohibit why? Because it depicts the original enclosed construction. But over time today, it is possible that breaches of more than Tanamot have occurred, uh, which are impossible to, pit, to depict in this print. So he says, it's very nice you're showing me an old map of the city of London, but that doesn't depict what is the current status of it and which we know actually by the 17th century, they were no longer repairing the wall anymore, right? By the 17th century, the wall of London no longer fit its, uh, uh, served its original purpose about protecting the city. The city was now expanding outside of the walls of London, and therefore uh, it simply didn't have any purpose. And over time, they'll actually start intentionally taking down the wall because it actually becomes a barrier. It doesn't actually protect anything, it just causes disruption in, uh, in movements. Um, and so what's interesting about this is, again, you can see that he's still communicating with people in London. You can see he's annoyed with the people in London. Um, but he's also keenly aware, right? He, he's been the rabbi in London, and so it makes sense that they're going to ask him, you know, what's his take on it. And you can appreciate that people living there would be like, oh, come on, but there's a wall almost encloses the whole city. Like, come on, can't we just do it anyway? And he says, I'm sorry, the breaches are too, are too big. Um, so it wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be possible. But it is interesting that they were thinking about that question of Eru uh, at that time and knowing how much more that would have made Jewish life uh, manageable to have, uh, to have an Eru uh, there. And, well, they tried, but uh, didn't, quite, uh, didn't quite make it. Um, okay, so let's uh, get to the conclusion then. So those are some of his uh, interesting contributions, again, the, I think the establishment of the minhag, kind of the standard practice of the community, uh, attempt to kind of normalize Jewish practice, right, making new Jews essentially, uh, and continuing to serve as the halakhic guide of the community. We know that some of the following rabbis will have relationships with him, so he has a kind of in that it's a close relationship with the community. Um, but I would say in conclusion, certainly his time in London was short-lived. I mean, he, he wasn't here a very long time. Um, and in certain sense, it was marred by conflicts, um, perhaps setting the stage for future, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, struggles in the community, right? The struggles in the community about religious observance, about the relationships between the rabbis and the board, right? Things that will become, right? You look in the history of the, of the Spanish Portuguese, not only here in all the Spanish Portuguese communities, that will be a regular conflict because the, the structure here will be a bit different, right? The rabbis won't be in charge they will, the way they will be in other places, and so that will cause uh, a degree of tension. Um, but he does lay the groundwork for the community, right? He does, he signs the askamot, you know, formalizing them as kind of rabbinically sanctioned. He makes sure the minhag is being followed correctly. He starts establishing norms of Jewish practice, and really, in that sense, forms the the baseline for the establishment of a Jewish community that will survive and thrive for centuries. I mean, you really think of the great merit of, uh, of you know, those original Jews who kind of came back and you know, escaped from Spain and Portugal, escaped the Inquisition, they wanted to return to Judaism. They struggled with what that return should look like, but that, you know, that, that commitment ultimately did create something uh, that lasted for, uh, for centuries and is still, uh, is still living uh, today. Uh, and so, while this may be the shortest rabbinic tenure that we will talk about 
uh, in, uh, in this lecture, um, it is still perhaps one of the most important ones uh, at, the very same, at the very same time. Uh, the next uh, lecture uh, in November, we're going to be looking at uh, uh, one of the, the next Chachamim. We'll be looking at Davinietto, who, while there will be some people in between them, he'll be the first rabbi of Bevis Mark Synagogue building. Uh, so in this actual building, he will be the first Chacham to serve here. We'll look at him, through him, we'll look at some of the previous Chachamim as well, and we'll kind of get a sense of how the communities continue to develop and change into the, 18th, uh, into the 18th century. So thank you all for coming. And have a good, yes, questions? Can I just ask, what happens to the people that wouldn't turn the line? Were they expelled from the community? It seems that some of them did, yeah. Seems that some of them did. Seems that who knows who knows over time you know what what happens, but. Uh, and was he yeah. the one that decided where they came from Portugal or wherever if they put up their status? Yeah, we, we it's a good question. We don't really seem questions about status because what seems to be the case is that even if they were coming from Portugal, they've been living as Catholics. Conversos married conversos. New Christians marry new Christians. There was great uh, stigma in Portugal between old Christians and new Christians socially, religiously, and so on. So in general, there wasn't a concern that if someone you know, showed up in town who was from Converso background, that you had to be concerned that maybe they had intermarriage in their family. The assumption was that they were still halakhically Jews. So that was, uh, that was the usual. You have rare exceptions where we know that's not the case, but usually that's the case. Yeah. Um, how is he well, he maybe he's writing in Hebrew. He's not speaking. Yeah. No, people, nobody so, speaks Hebrew at well, that time. What language? Because probably Spanish. So he would be speaking Spanish. Yes. In a in a community that was speaking Portuguese. And Spanish. It's a mix at that time, probably. And yeah. Linked to that question, you mentioned earlier on that he was sent to Spain, which I found astonishing. I've read. Yeah, it's, it's. I don't really know the whole story. It seems a bit. I guess if you were going in official capacities, maybe you would have like immunity or something like that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, probably something like that. Plus, Jews weren't permitted to live in Spain, but the Inquisition wasn't interested in Jews. It was interested in conversos. He was a born Jew. So the, the, the Inquisition had nothing to do with him because he wasn't doing anything heretical as far as their, I mean, he was heretical because he was Jew, but not heretical in the sense that he was a Catholic living as a Jew. So in a sense, he was protected, you know, and that's, so as long as he had a, a dispensation to say that a Jew could go into Spain, he didn't have to fear that the Inquisition would, you know, only if he, if he helped conversos in Spain, then he could be possibly prosecuted by the Inquisition, but not just as a Jew, yeah. Scrolls that were taken out on some Yeah, I'm not sure. It could be some of the original ones came from Amsterdam. Maybe they were coming from Morocco. I don't know. I'm not sure the whole history of it. Yeah, in those different communities. I'm not sure which one. Italy. You know, there were several places they could have come from. I'm not sure the exact uh, history. So what's the oldest surviving scroll that we have here? I don't know. But if you ask uh, Dr. Jeremy Schoenfeld, he can probably tell you. Okay, everyone, thank you so much. Have a lovely night. Yeah.